0: This is Jason Lee McKinney from the Jason Lee McKinney Band. And I'm coming here from Nashville and you're listening to Talkin' Blues.
1: So I have to ask you first, how was your son's basketball tournament going?
0: It, we won both our games today so we will be in the championship tomorrow um so we he does travel ball and so we play i mean a lot of weekends if i'm not on the road um i'm at tournaments with him so uh,
1: um are you a coach or just a very involved parent
0: no very involved parent i'm not a coach because it, I, I tend to be a little bit hard on him when i when i'm coaching so i i I leave myself to the dad mode and let somebody else <laughs> coach it.
1: Uh, was sports big in,
0: in your life? Yeah, my dad was actually a rugby player growing up. So athletics and music. And so kind of how those intertwine is my dad's rugby team to make extra money would provide security for rock concerts. <laughs> and so I ended up being around a lot of athletes because of the rugby, but then also being around a lot of music because we would end up backstage at these Concerts, or you know, out watching because my dad's rugby team would provide the security.
1: Um, can you any memorable incidents from your youth about watching your dad work a, a concert crowd? None
0: that I remember, uh, to be honest, I, I, you know, though you have those memories that you've been told, but they're not actually your memories. They're memories that right. people have told you. There are several about seeing kiss soundcheck before they had ever taken their makeup off <laughs> and they would check in makeup. And just the story I heard was just being me being deathly afraid of Gene Simmons, like climbing up my dad's shoulder, trying to get as far away from him as, you know, which, my kids now see him as like Gene Simmons, Family Jewels, and like you were afraid of that guy. And I'm like, well, it was a different thing back then. So, your dad had a major influence on you musically. He did. He could not play or sing, but he could cite like who the bass player was on the, you know, whether it was James Jamerson or whoever on Motown or tell you who played the harmonica on X. I mean, he was. Very, very, very into music, though he couldn't do it at all.
1: and he's also the one who took you to see the Prince movie.
0: He did take me to see Prince at uh, Purple Rain at eight years old. so uh, I, I made different parenting choices but, <laughs> but, but i'm great I'm grateful that he did that because that you know I could color the story and make it a little more nuanced or cool. but really, I just remember getting a certain feeling when I heard Purple Rain and seeing Prince play it in the movie. And I just thought, I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to make people feel like that when they hear one of my songs.
1: So at the age of eight, you see this movie and you decide this is what you want to pursue. What's the next step?
0: Well, the next year happened to be the year that in school they took us from recorder and we could pick an instrument, you know, like a real instrument. And so I came in like guns ablazing, you know, nine years old, full of, you know, vinegar and ready to go and I was like I want to play guitar and they're like you can't do that this is a band class and I was like all right cool then I want to play bass and they're like yeah you can't do that either and I said well what do you have that that a rock band is going to instrument they said you can be a drummer and so that's what I started out I was a drummer all through school uh, just because it was the only thing that you know was in a rock band that you could you could play in school I didn't actually start s- singing until high school Was
1: it a full kit or was it like a snare or what kind of drums were you playing?
0: I started my first two years on just a snare drum and I got my first kit in sixth grade. And so from there, and like I said, I played all through middle school and into high school. And then I started singing in high school and then did the, you know, typical local rock band. You know, I was the kid that was playing in clubs and staying out till four in the morning and then coming into my economics class and, you know, sleeping the whole time so
1: well tell me about that journey of playing in in a band while going to school what at that point were you still pursuing the stream of being prince and what kind of music were you playing
0: i was playing sort of a mix of funk and grunge i've always been into like r&b and Uh, kind of funky music, blues type music, um, especially the more rockin' kind of blues. It's interesting because I kind of grew up in this sort of three-pronged musical influence. Um, My dad was very much into like Southern rock and and traditional country. And so I got a lot of that, like Willie Nelson and, and all that, like Johnny Cash and exposed to that from my dad. Then I have an older brother who's 11 years older. And so he gave me like Rush and Zeppelin and... Fog hat and you know bad company and you know older brother doing the rock thing, <laughs> right. and then my mom's influences centered around like uh, Tina Turner and Marvin Gaye and Hollow Oates and Earth Wind and Fire, and so I grew up with all the R and B sort of stuff from my mother, uh, and so those three things. And it's funny because people will say like, "Oh, your music's so diverse." And and it is and it isn't. And the reason how it isn't is I still go back to those three sort of streams of influence. And if you listen to any of my albums from album number one to album number you know 12 now, it has those three streams in it. It's really got country influences, it's got R&B and blues influences, and it's got rock influences.
1: Well, it's interesting because at one point, did you not release three EPs with three influences?
0: We did. Tell me about that. Well, we kind of felt there was one. It was a challenge to release three EPs. Uh, The other thing is there was a little bit of like, I didn't feel like people were getting it. Like they were saying, ah, you're, you know, you're all over the place. And it was sort of like a way for us to go, no, we're not all over the place. We're this, we're this, and we're this. And we're going to show you by basically on the albums before that. And really the albums after that, it's like uh, we kept serving people cake, right? And so we had our eggs, we had our flour, and then we had the frosting, You know, and so we kept giving people cakes and like, I don't get what this is and what's in this. And so for that album, the Triple E P, we gave them like, here's a batch of eggs. Here's the flour and here's the icing on it. And then people were like, oh, I get it. And since then, we have had more reception to what we do as far as plus that's that album. One of the EPs had Sacred Southern Soul, which is probably to date our most popular song. So that also helped, too. But. So
1: So was it three EPs packaged this one or was it three separate things?
0: Physically, it's one album. You okay. can buy it as one, but digitally it's three separate albums. So if you go to Apple or Spotify, it's actually three separate EPs.
1: Now, is there a way to um, monitor which one was more popular?
0: There is, I mean, at least Spotify numbers, right. and it's just about, if if you remove the outlier of Sacred Southern Soul, the song, right. they're all about equal, but obviously with that song being our most popular, the Sacred LP, or LP, the Sacred EP was the most popular, but it's because of that outlier, because, the, you know, that one song has so many plays and so many streams, and it sort of skews the rest of the, you know, numbers.
1: Yeah, but thank God for that yeah
0: yeah it's helped (laughs) us for sure
1: okay so um obviously you have always loved different types of genres and and the fact that you had to you did release three eps to show those influences um and the fact that people questioned you know what is it that you do has it gotten in the way of what you do is not not to say you can't focus on one versus the other but has that changed the way you approach things?
0: No, because I'm pretty stubborn. <laughs> so it hasn't changed. I mean, has it hurt us? I'm sure it has. But it hasn't changed because the people that I love, my favorite artist, like, you know, my favorite artist of all time is Prince. Mm-hmm. And he mixed a bunch of stuff together. He mixed rock and R&B and soul and pop music all together. And I've got a Zeppelin shirt on right now. Zeppelin's my favorite rock band. And they went from, you know, the song Hot Dog to like, you know, name it. I mean, Fool in the Rain. I mean, very different to to Dire Maker to, I mean, what, you know, All of My Love. They were all over the map, you know, to Immigrant Song. I mean, and then, you know, my wife's favorite band is Queen. They did the same thing. And Willie Nelson didn't really stick to one thing. He he had some very jazz-influenced stuff on Stardust. And then he had Red-Handed Stranger, where it was basically – bob wills you know doing bob wills kind of stuff some western swing so i've always admired artists that didn't do that they sort of um you know not my favorite artist in the world but bowie was like that bowie would show up in one album he'd do this and next time he'd do that and uh, i also have an admiration for people that stick in their lane you know i mean what is that old joke that acdc only has one song but man it's a great song (laughs) i mean it's an amazing i'd rather hear them play that song than And to make the joke, you know, and I think I even heard a joke one time that Malcolm was asked one time by a reporter. uh, Do you guys ever get offended when people say you have 12 albums of the exact same thing? And he said, I do. I get greatly offended because we have 13 albums of the exact same thing. (laughs) So I I I admire that. And I think that staying in your lane is great. It's just never inspired me. And, And I don't feel like we're mixing in everything. We're going back down to its country. It's r and and blues, and it's rock and roll. And those are always the three elements. Um, one album can lean a little this direction, one album a little more that direction, but it's always those three elements.
1: Okay, so before you moved to Nashville, where, where did you live?
0: I grew up in Southern Indiana.
1: With the idea of always wanting to be a musician.
0: That was always the plan from eight years old on.
1: So at one point you decided to move to Nashville, to pursue the stream. I believe you got a record contract.
0: I did, that, yeah.
1: That didn't work out.
0: It didn't. It did get me out of Indiana. And it did, you know, if I look at it, look back on it, it did provide me a living on nothing but music for two years. And it provided me the connections I needed to continue on. Because So hey, it's always... Was it ahead. because
1: you became a songwriter? What what? How did it provide you... Um, to make a living in music.
0: Um, well, I always wrote all the songs, but it between the record advance uh, at the okay. time and then the touring, I didn't have to do anything else. And the connections it provided me just knowing this network of people that were able to keep me sort of going. I've only had three years of my adult life. Uh, where I haven't made a living off music. Um, Now it's not always been glamorous. I've done uh, pharmacy commercials. There have been times I needed to pay the rent and I sang for pharmacy commercials. Uh, I mean, isn't that music too? Yeah, it is. And, and I even, I teach music business now at the collegiate level and I still consider the part of the music business. That's, I do that as well as tour and play and, and, and on a record label, but it's not always, you know, the one thing, you know, we, we tend to think of, or not we who are in it, but this is, but society as a whole tends to think of music as you're Adele or man, just hang in there and you'll make it Mm -hmm. as opposed to if I told people I'm a plumber and I've put my kids through college, my older kids, I've, I've got a house, I've got a decent retirement. And I did that as a plumber. They'd be like, man, you're a very successful plumber. But when I tell them I've done that in music because I'm not a household name, sometimes even today I'll get, Oh, just hang in there, buddy. Someday you'll make it. I'm like, what part of, I haven't had to work another job. I, I, I I'm going to be able to retire like normal people. I've got a normal Nashville house. I, my kids are fine. Like, what part of that is failing? But we seem to have this weird thing with music where, you know, like I said, you're Chris Stapleton, Adele, or you're bust, and that's just not the case.
1: Right. I mean, it, but it is a difficult career. Like, it's it is, not an yeah. easy business to get into. Um, I wonder. When, when you did get signed, how you felt, how old were you? And, and tell me about what your vision at that time would have been on that first record contract.
0: I am that's, I will say this, no one has ever asked me that. So this is the first time, which is great. I'm happy to talk about it. I was 24 years old. I had twins. uh, My twins who are now 27, they were, um, well, four or five years old and I we built our reputation as being like um, early Maroon Five before they were. We were kind of like uh, Jamiroquai meets brand new heavies kind of stuff, very funky, and but we we built up this huge like independent following. But we took the deal because I had mouths to feed, and the label immediately turned us into Sugar Ray, uh, if you remember those guys, mm-hmm. and that was not what we wanted to be. And so what we achieved with that first deal is not only did we not gain any new fans, but we also alienated all of our old fans. And so we ended up worse off than we were before. Um, But the feeling when I first got the deal in a way was validation because I grew up, uh, I love where I grew up. It's very Midwest farmer cornfields, but no one really makes it in music. I mean, there actually are a few people, um, Philip Lawrence, who writes with uh, Bruno Mars, he co-wrote Uptown Funk, is from my hometown, and Andy Timmons, the guitar shredder guy. But everyone who makes it leaves. like Nobody stays. (laughs) And so what you hear in the hometown is like, you're crazy. like You're just going to fall on your face. When are you going to grow up? Uh, That sort of stuff. So the first feeling was validation. Uh, The second was I kind of bought into my own hype. Uh, One of the first people that I was introduced to in Nashville was a really – big name and they had me go out to eat dinner with them because, you know, you're going to be the next him. And without using name, I, I did not turn out to be the next him. So, uh but I kind of bought into my own hype and I became pretty full of myself, to be honest.
1: So when, when it doesn't work out and I don't know what, so they, they try to make you into somebody that you're not. And you obviously see this or feel this very quickly that it's not you. What does that do to, Somebody who's becoming a little full of themselves.
0: It it's a weird thing because you're you're trapped in this sort of paradox of I've got these kids at home, they're waving this money in my face and this stardom. Uh, all I got to do is suck it up and take it. And once I've had a couple hits, I can go do whatever I want. Right. On the other hand, it's like, wait, I thought you guys signed me because you thought I knew what I was doing. Why why did you sign me if you didn't think if you didn't like what I was doing? Why did you sign me? Uh, and I found out that a lot of that early stuff was just, the first deal was pretty much one, because I could sing. And two, because, and this is not true now, trust me. Uh, my wife would even tell you that, but it was because of how I looked. Right. They 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 liked how I looked. And I never wanted to be validated on that. I, and so it, it was definitely, uh, I felt pulled in multiple directions for sure.
1: So when it didn't work out, what did that do to you?
0: It was a very soul crushing experience, but a life-saving experience because I ended up, uh, after some sort of revamping and trying to keep it going, I ended up in a six month period, uh, losing my father to cancer, losing my record deal and losing my first marriage. And so all of that hubris that I was carrying around very, very quickly got eradicated. And I was, given a massive dose of humility, uh, and great weight loss program. When you have a death of a parent and the loss of a marriage and loss of a career, it's amazing how you just lose weight. Uh, so it, it was a, it was a necessary, it's an experience. It was immensely painful at the time. I mean, the most painful year of my life by far. And because there was just so much loss, you know, loss of a career, loss of a marriage, loss of a parent, Uh, But at the same time, I look back on it and I'm very grateful because it made it truly did as cliche cliche as it sounds. It made me a better person.
1: So when all this is happening and and, and it's all horrible, um, people can react different ways. And obviously you reacted in a way to keep going. Tell me about that, that that Mm -hmm. thing of and I know we talk about hope a lot and I don't know if that's where it comes from. Um, mm-hmm. but tell me about being, you know, hitting this brick wall and having terrible things happen to you and how you deal with that and how you continue with that.
0: Right. Well, the terrible things too, it's an interesting thing to take because there are terrible things that happen to us that we have nothing to do with. Right. So like with the record deal, um, I kind of went along with everything they said because I thought I had to. So that was, and then they They basically ended up not working out and they kind of took advantage of me. And so that happened to me. Obviously I had nothing to do with my father's cancer. Uh, We had a, a weird relationship. I was super close with him when I was little, I was definitely a daddy's boy. And then we had a strained relationship as an adult that, that, what that happened to me, that wasn't my fault either. But then the marriage, it was pretty much my fault. And so I had this weird mix of like things that happened to me and things that I had brought upon myself. And so that's a hard thing to deal with. But one, I didn't initially keep going. When I went through all that, I quit music. That was the three years that I was not making a living in music. I basically just left. I went into the corporate world and I determined a few things. I had I had received my identity from being a musician. That was who I was up until that point. I discovered that that is a horrible place to put your identity because then it's always dependent upon somebody else's opinion. So if I put out a record that people love, well, then now I'm, I'm apparently a good person. And if I put out a record that people hate, well, now I'm a horrible person. And I just wanted to jump off that, that merry-go-round and never get back on. And then the other thing about it too, is my faith definitely played a role uh, in it. And so, I mean, I definitely have a deep uh, religious faith and and it, and it took hold then more because I had nothing else to depend on. But I sort of shifted my whole focus to just being a great dad and changed everything. I never thought I'd be back in music. And if I got like two minutes, I'll tell you how I got back into it, which is weird. I worked for this golf equipment manufacturer and I was like a brand development guy, right? That's what they hired me for. And it was owned by a guy who got caught up in a Ponzi scheme. And so the SEC came in and seized, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, came in and seized the company. And when they do that, a lot of people don't know you can't buy anything, you can't sell anything, you can't make anything, but you have to show up to work. Wow. And so people are literally playing solitaire. I had all this vacation built up. And so I asked my CEO, I was like, I'm bored out of my mind. Can I just take my vacation? He's like, sure, because they're not gonna give it to you when they close the doors. So when the government closes the doors and sells the business, that's it, no severance. So I was hanging out at home, got bored, started kind of reaching out to some old music buddies. And I wrote a song called June 7th with my, one of my ex writing partners about my divorce. And it's the first time I touched an instrument, done anything, played it for a guy who's now uh, a buddy of mine. Who's the vice president of a capital Christian music group. He cried. I played it for a buddy of mine who at the time was the drummer for Gary Allen, the country artist. He cried. And I was like, oh, well, that's, that's kind of crazy. And so then I played it for a buddy of mine who was a high up like chief marketing officer for one of the largest healthcare corporations and nothing to do with music. He cried and then he brought out a bottle of wine and he opened it and he said, I got a question for you before you drink this wine. And I said, what? And he said, how much would it cost for you to do a record? And I gave him the number and he said, hang on. And he wrote a check and gave it to me. And he said, go do it. This is what you're supposed to do. And from there, that was the beginning of the Jason Lee McKinney band was that. So I had no plans to come back and do music again. Literally, it just sort of, I was sort of pushed back into it.
1: So even though that song, it it didn't sound like when you sat down and wrote that song that it was difficult. It just came out of you. And even though you saw how people were moved by this tune, in your mind, you didn't think, hey, I should be doing this?
0: I didn't. I didn't. I was so focused on like, nope, I'm just dad. I'm just that. And I don't regret that decision at all. It was, it was three years of great times with my kids. Uh, and I, at that time I'd met, I was not married yet, but I met my wife now and it, I mean, my son who's also a recording artist who's grown now said that she stepped into a dumpster fire and he, he'll never figure out why she stepped into a dumpster fire, but she allowed me to go back into music and yet maintain a healthy family and so if it weren't for her, I'm not sure I would have done it, even with my buddy writing me a check.
1: Okay, so when you, when you go through a thing like that you did with the first label, and then all of a sudden you think, okay, this is my big break, and realize that being with a big label, getting a nice advance, whatever, doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to make you or even make you happy. And to see how a record label can manipulate the artist to become somebody they're not, how do you feel about the music industry at that point? Like, is there any part of you that thinks, I don't know if I really want to do this because of what I've gone through?
0: Yeah, there's a big part. And that's actually why I ended up the other part. Like I mentioned, I'm a, a music business and a philosophy professor. How I ended up in that is, I that in those three years, I went back and got a bachelor in management. And then even after I got back into music, I went and got a master's degree in business administration And then I got a doctorate in it because I just wanted to learn as much after that first experience. I was like, I never want to sit across from someone again at a table negotiating and not know as much about business as they do. And so I wanted to learn everything I could to try to not be taken advantage of again.
1: And was that focused on music, the business of music, or was it focused on business period? It
0: was focused on the music industry. And, And one of my passions became helping young people not have to go through that you know, not have to go through. The biggest thing with me in that first deal was I didn't have a key man clause. So the guy who signed me, who I still love and adore, he left the company and went to work for Irving a- Azoff. When he left, all of our support went out the door, but yet now we're trapped in this three album deal and nobody left there gives a crap about what we do. And so, but I didn't even know what a key man clause was to look for it. So that one simple thing, if I would have known that when my, when I saw my first deal I wouldn't have been in the predicament. I would have been able to get out when he left. Right, And so I became a passion to go, I'm not only going to go back so I can learn from me, but I'm going to go back and I'm going to teach at the university level and try to help other people not be taken advantage of too.
1: Okay, so your friend writes you this check and says, go record an album. At this point, are you comfortable as to what you need to do to achieve what you hope to do?
0: I, I had very small hopes in the beginning. I was just sort of inching back in. I just wanted to do this record. Uh, the very first record, hope that it broke even do, do a few shows and see what happens. I I had much less of, I was so driven the first time that the second time around I promised myself not to be as driven. I was the guy that, and I just told my son this, my son is a recording artist for tooth and nail, which is a heavy label. Uh, and he's out on tour with like Norma Jean and Emery and a lot of the big heavy artists like right now. Uh, and I told him he was talking about things and, you know, like frustrations with the road. And I told him, was like, you know, the one thing I regret doing is I was always the guy that was pissed off because I was the opening act. And I'd be mad that I'm the opening act for 6,000 people. Not I never looked at the glasses half full that first time. I always just looked at, well, this guy gets to play longer. Why does he get to play longer? I I should be the one. Instead of going, hey, I'm getting, look at this. I'm getting to do this. This is awesome. And if it never happens again, look at what I'm getting to do. And so I encouraged my son to do that. That's why it's fresh on my mind. So the second time around, I went in with very low expectations. And the funny thing is we spent almost a decade not even seeking a record deal and actually turning down several record deals because of that experience. But we got to go to, Uh, We got pretty big in Europe and we played some huge festivals in France and Poland and Germany. We got to go to the Middle East and to around Qatar and Kuwait and and I've, I've toured Africa and all that happened after the big record deal. And so when my expectations were low and I was just sort of trying to focus on doing good work and doing the right thing and trying to stay just as humble as I could and surrounding myself with just good people, even if they weren't the best experts just surround myself with good people and that's why this thing that we've done has lasted for 12 years is because of that
1: so being a little hesitant and being very careful and also having um educated yourself ridiculously (laughs) um what what would your goals been like did you have goals set to say okay when we release this i'm hoping it will sell so many i'm hoping we will play these places or did you have any kind of a goal with your career?
0: Not in the beginning, but as we started to record more albums. So the first album didn't really do much. It, it did enough to get me excited, you know, but not enough to like, really, it didn't make a blip. The second album, I did a duet, like a country duet with my daughter. Because basically, I wrote a song, a daddy-daughter song, because she could sing her little rear end off at the time. Still can, by the way. And and that comes, she shows back up on our newest album. So she was a little kid then; she was like eight, and it was called "Daddy Dance with Me," and it went viral. It we had no money behind it; it just went viral. It just you know blew up on the internet. Once that happened, our goal started to change because we we realized, okay, we've got something here that we can we can do something. Um, fast forward to this latest album. One last thing. Uh, the background vocals, the female background vocals are my daughter-in-law. So one of my son's wives and my daughter. So like at the end of the song, when I'm gone, that like super high wailing, powerful female voice is the same little girl that sang daddy dance with me, you know, a decade earlier. So it's kind of a sweet full circle thing.
1: And you have other family members on the album, right?
0: Yeah. My son's appear, uh, well, let me, let me say this. My son who's on tooth and nail records definitely does not appear on the record because it was done after he signed his deal. Uh, It sounds like him, but it's really his twin brother that does all the parts that he would do because his contract says he's not allowed to record on anyone else's record. Right. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. But that must've been neat to
1: bring in the family except for your son.
0: Yeah. Except for, yeah, he definitely did not do anything. No, it was really cool. Um, it was a uh, kind of a legacy thing. I mean, all of my kids are, you know, one of them's a music minister at a church. Uh, one of the twins, the other twin, like I said, is a recording artist. My daughter is a music theater major on full ride. Uh, my daughter-in-law is a choir teacher. Uh, and so, and my, even the little guy, the eight year old, like he, he has his own Instagram channel and does like, he's done drum covers of fool in the rain from Zeppelin and 50 ways to leave your lover. Uh, I was getting ready to do uh, a drum cover of Rosanna. And like, he's, he's, phenomenal for his age so that legacy thing is really something that i'm proud of um i didn't do anything they're just sort of naturally good at it uh so i just uh, sit back and enjoy that
1: well if he can do the drum part to rosanna he must be more than good
0: (laughs) he's doing pretty good and that that on instagram like within an hour got like thirty-one thousand you know, views or whatever. So he, he's doing pretty good.
1: So tell me about that. How does that legacy thing happen? I mean, you said you didn't do anything, but something must've happened that your kids are all musical in one form or another.
0: I really don't know. I, I, it's sort of a nature nurture thing, but I think a lot of it is, is nature. I think they're just born with it. Now I will say with my older boys, um, they grew up when I was touring heavily with the first band And so they grew up around that. They, they, they knew sort of what that was like. My daughter sort of had half her early life when I was on the road and kind of that three year period, I wasn't. And then afterwards, so, but you know, she grew up very early, just, I think the thing that my kids have, I'm fumbling around a little bit, but I think the thing that my kids have is they don't have a fear of music. So like when my daughter first started singing, she was seven and our church had this like music pageant thing they were going to do. And she's like, I want to sing something for it. And I was like, sure, you can sing something for it. Try it. And I said, what do you want to try Is your first song you're going to sing in front of people? And she said, I think I'm going to do All I Want for Christmas by Mariah Carey. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and she just went about like, yeah, I can do that. Why, why wouldn't I be able to do that? And she did it. And the same thing with my son, like he doesn't hear Rosanna and think, ooh, man, he thinks I can do that. And I don't think it's conceit, not, not at his age. I think it's just a... Because he grows, he's growing up around musicians who do that sort of thing all the time. There's not this natural fear of, I can't do that, even when it's hard, even when he's figuring it out and it comes really hard. He just figures, like, I'm just missing something. It's not that I can't do this. And I think, if anything, that's sort of the uh, non-nature part of it. That's the nurture part. Is there's just not this assumption that I can't do it.
1: Okay, so you decide to go back and restart your career in your mind, are you thinking I can do this? Is there any point where you think, oh, I don't know if I can do this?
0: Sure. There was a, the, I didn't doubt that I could write decent songs so that I could perform. I doubted that I could sort of weasel my way back into the you know, industry side of it. You know, So that was the doubt. The doubt wasn't really in the ability to do the music. It was kind of like, do I have the ability and the, even the wherewithal to kind of withstand all of the crap that comes along with being in the business. And that's always the taxing part, you know, creating is the fun part. Uh, you know, sometimes performing is the fun part, (laughs) not always, but sometimes, I mean, at least half the time performing's fun, dealing with the industry stuff, the the contacts and the, you know, the contracts and all that, that's never fun. Nobody gets into it to do that. It's just a necessary evil.
1: But, is it made easier by the fact that you've now gone and gotten degrees, you've studied the business of music, you're teaching the business of music. Does the, having that knowledge put you in a better spot? I mean, obviously it does, but it, it, does it put you in a spot that it makes it a lot easier to achieve the goals that you want?
0: Yeah, I think that's a great question. And maybe this is, maybe this is the sort of existential reason for this whole interview is that maybe this will help somebody. My knowledge in music, as far as just experientially and educationally, has prepared me intellectually to be in the industry. But what I still find difficult at times is emotionally being in it. That sometimes if I'm not careful, you know, it will hurt my feelings if somebody doesn't like a song. Or if somebody tries to do me wrong on a contract, it's not that I can't catch it intellectually, but there there's an icky feeling it's there's an emotional drain there that i still find difficult
1: but i presume that's part of who you are right like i don't know if you can change that
0: yeah i mean uh, luckily my wife now she's a marriage and family therapist she's a psychologist so she says i'm conflict avoidant is the term she <laughs> uses <laughs> so
1: is it lucky or unlucky that you're married to
0: a <laughs> Well, I can tell you, I've never won an argument, but I'm not sure if that's because I'm married or because she's a psychologist, but there was one time earlier in our marriage where I was, we were taking a walk and, and we weren't even arguing. We were just talking about something. And she goes, now, where do you think that comes from? And I was like, don't, don't do that to me. Don't, I'm not on your couch. I'm not paying you money. Don't do that to me. So.
1: All right. So you decided to take a grab of your career and now you've done 13 studio albums So 12 studio albums, one live album. Correct. Yeah. That's a lot of material. Tommy was there a point where things changed like is is it I, I presume every album is a new project and you you look at it differently mm-hmm. but was there when you look back on it was there anything that you just thought okay that was the turning point in my career where things went a different way or you know not necessarily negative or positive but it, was there was it point in your career of the 13 albums where things just changed.
0: As far as industry-wise, no, because there's sort of been this up-and-down nature. So I mentioned we had that blip with Dance With Me, right? right, with my daughter. And then that went away. The next album didn't do that great. And then the out, it did okay. We had a thing with Norfolk Southern Trains, uh, which kind of carried us through. We had sort of a corporate thing going on. So it was like a corporate hit. It was weird. <laughs> um, and it was awesome. My dad used to work for Norfolk Southern. So I, I basically did this song about Norfolk Southern Trains, because that's where he works. And then then I get a call from their corporate office after the album's out. And I was like, oh, no, (laughs) they're going to sue me. And instead, they were like, we love it. Can we like sponsor you guys? Can we promote it? Can we buy you a bunch of T-shirts and merchandise? And I was like, yeah, you can certainly do that. We'd love that. And so for two years, they sponsored us. They did all of our T-shirts. They really pushed that. And so that song did well. The album after that just didn't do anything. It was just, it was awful. It tanked. It was a double album. I still think it's good, but it didn't do anything.
1: Okay, so tell me about that. Tell me when you go through this high and then you you believe in the next album and it doesn't do anything. What, What goes through your mind and how do you deal with that?
0: I mean, there's all the questions that people have like, do I suck? Was it all a fluke? <laughs> you know, like like uh, there's all of that stuff. But then there's the other thing of like, I look at things that are really inspirational. And I think a good thing for us at the time is we were, we recorded that album that tanked in Ardent studios down in Memphis. And of course, one of the, and this is for music nerds here, but one of the guys that hangs around there and has a huge history with Ardent is Jody Stevens from big star. Well, big star is like one of the most influential like pop rock bands ever and they tanked. They failed miserably when they were together. Right. And now there's all these people in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame who mention, uh, mention them as influences, and like all three of their records are in Rolling Stones' top, you know, whatever it is, 100, yeah, yeah. but they didn't get the experience into that. So I looked at when we made that record going, I know that it's good, and it still hasn't sold anything in comparison. And, and I say it failed. We did have a top 10 hit in Texas. So we we had one thing that kind of did pretty well. Uh, in one state because uh, Texas has their whole red dirt scene. And so we we had a song that went top 10 there. Uh, but overall, the record sold very minimally. Um, so there was enough to like excitement, like, well, we had our biggest single at that point. That was our biggest charting single, but we didn't really have success selling the record. But I kind of go back to like, you know, Van Gogh didn't sell a painting and his brother owned an art gallery. And now I'm not putting myself in, the, in their category. I'm just saying the market, sales do not always reflect the art. Sometimes the art can be terrible and sell really well. Sometimes the art can be amazing and not sell at all. And then sometimes the planets align and and it sells really well and it's really great because it's just really great. And so I didn't let it get to me too much. The The, the album right after that was the triple EP. And I would say if there was a turning point, that was the turning point was the triple EP. We've had some, at least touring wise consistently, way more festivals, way better gigs since that. Um, I mean, the pandemic killed us, but I think that kind of killed everybody for 2020. So
1: I do want to get to that. But when you're playing this album that didn't do well, but you still believe in it, I mean, are you getting feedback from playing the new songs that's not the same as
0: other albums? Like, how do you know? Well, I mean, the album sales didn't do as well. Uh, That's one way to know. But there were a few songs on that album, the, the radio single people would request, uh people would request a song called Midnight in Memphis. Uh, but there wasn't as many like people showing up to shows going, Oh, are you guys gonna play such and such tonight? And so I will say that we did move on from that record quicker than we would otherwise, and you know, got back in the studio quicker than we would have. Um yeah, that's really the only way that we could tell live, because um, we were still playing in the back catalog, and so people were still coming and re- re- requesting those songs. But we weren't looking out and seeing nearly as many people sing along, you know, to as many songs. So we thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe it's just a, and, and I think it's a little bit more uh, of an artful record. There's more like, I mean, we do a song in Dorian, which is not typical. In it was, it was more artsy, which I still. I'm still behind, I still believe in it. Um, Some of my favorite stuff is that, but it just wasn't as easily digestible.
1: Okay, so you talked about the pandemic. Um, This latest album, I presume was ready before the pandemic or almost done before the pandemic and you held everything back. In the meantime, while things shut down, you decided to release one or two albums, a Christmas Mm -hmm. album and a covers album. Yeah, um, I don't know if that was more to keep yourself busy or if that was definitely a goal. But what does it do when you work on an album and all of a sudden you have to shove it for two years? And obviously, it's something—it's an album that you really care about and feel that it's really good. Um, tell me about what what it what that did to you, other, other than the fact that the whole world shut down because of the pandemic.
0: Right. Well, we actually our 2020 album pieces released a week before the pandemic hit. And so it had gone to number seven on the roots charts and then it just nosedived cause just nobody and it was funny because people were still listening to music, but like I started noticing a lot of like the legacy artists started doing really well, like Springsteen's record bumped up in the roots charts is new one, which is brilliant. I mean, it's, it's probably better than mine. I'm not saying I'm on the same level as Springsteen, but there, but the legacy artists started to pop up and and be more. And I think it's probably like an old coat. It's just comfortable, you know? And so people like us who are still sort of, we're in the national, you know, zeitgeist, but we're on the low level. Like we're, we're, we're that one guy that did that one song. (laughs) Like, that's what I say. I'm always that guy like, Oh, you're the guy that did that one thing. Yeah. That's me. That's always me. Um, but, so that tanked, and, and we were really proud of pieces. We still are really proud of pieces. But, but is it tanked
1: record. or just the fact that the world circumstances is did not allow you to promote it? Therefore, it still possibly has a life.
0: I, I w- I'd like to think that. And so that's why people are talking about, like, what are you in the mode of recording right now? It's like, no, we, we've literally got three non-holiday albums that we've never toured on. So I'm not in writing mode at all. I'm in like, hey, there's you know, 40 songs that you guys haven't heard. We're, we're about playing those for a while. So pieces didn't go anywhere. We had already recorded all but three songs of one last thing we recorded in October of 2019. Uh, knowing that pieces was going to come out in the original plan was we were going to release one last thing like six months after pieces because the label wanted us to do this rapid fire thing to kind of build up. So we recorded all but three songs and then of course the pandemic hit and we just decided, we came to the label and said, as much as it hurts us to do this because it's our favorite record yet. And, and I don't always say that, but I mean, top to bottom, there's not a single song I'm like, eh, that's okay. Uh, and so I love it, but I didn't want to just put it out there when nobody was ready to to buy. And we certainly couldn't play shows on it. So I'd always wanted to do a covers record and a Christmas record. And I was like, we don't want to completely disappear until this thing's over. Why don't we do those? There's sort of records. Like if you do a covers record, they sort of have that, like people almost have this in their mind. Like it's not really a real record. You know what I'm saying? The same with the holiday record, like they're doing this, they're kind of keeping themselves out there. And so that was a lot of fun. And it, it sort of checked bucket list things of things I wanted to do. Um, but as far as it being hard, the fact that we went back and added three songs, I think is shows how hard it was. Cause you just keep kind of going. And, and the funny thing is, um, the three songs we added, uh, are the three most popular on the record so far. So, um, so that, I guess that's good news. Uh, we, we, or maybe we should have just tanked the whole record and, and recorded all new songs. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but I'm taking it as it means that, you know, the, at least that we, uh, the additions were well-received are so far. So I think it's hard, but at the same time, there was also like a refresh, like a reset button with the pandemic, Uh, which allowed us to sort of, we were getting burned out at the end, uh, before the pandemic. Like we were, it was just record, tour, record, tour, record, tour. And that year off, uh, now we have a renewed energy that we don't feel burned out at all. We're ready to, we're ready to tackle another five years. You know, what did you learn from that experience? Well, on a very pragmatic side, we were the band that would always get caught up doing like, well, we got a Thursday, Friday, Saturday run. You know, we we probably ought to take the Wednesday run, even though we're going to lose money on it. Take the Wednesday show and just lose money. And after the pandemic, we're like, yeah, we're not going to do that anymore. And so we ended up getting more profitable in 2021 by cutting out all the fluff gigs just by saying, you know what? If it's three shows a week instead of four, but we can make more money and be home with our family, we're going to do that. And so it, it, that was great. Uh, it was, it was, a, it was a great year financially for us, 2021. The other thing is you kind of reprioritize. And I think for me, I reminded myself, I'd started to just lose sight of the fact that the joy is getting to do it, not in, you know, how did this do, or how did that do, or how many streams did it get yesterday? It's like, I'm, I'm just getting to do it. And if it all ends tomorrow, because I am, no matter what I want to believe I'm closer to the end of my music career than I am to the beginning at this point and just by sheer numbers and so I just want to enjoy it and go let's put out the best freaking records we can let's be the the band that's known as the pop most positive like I always say this with this new record if hope is a drug I want to be Pablo Escobar like I just want to be the the kingpin dealer in hope and, and joy and you know, I just want to enjoy the, whatever's left of it. If it's three years, five years, 10 years, I just want to enjoy it.
1: So the, the theme of hope has come up a few times and I presume that the latest record probably has more messages of hope than all your previous albums in general. Um, where does that hope come say, from?
0: Um, well, I think it's always been there uh, and we don't, set out with like an agenda. So we, I just write for wherever I'm from. Like, so if I'm in a depressive state, it's going to be a depressing record. Like our album chasing obscurity is pretty bummer of a record. And that's where I was at at the time. Right. Um, but since sacred Southern soul, the the hope has been growing there. And so, um, I think it's just, I've learned to adjust myself and be grateful for where I'm at and grateful for each day. And I think the biggest thing for me is I've stopped the comparison game that whatever life somebody else has, they're not taking anything away from me. God didn't rip me off by not giving me that. Um, I mean, I was so mad at Chris Stapleton for a while for being such a good singer. And now I look at him and go, what? I wasn't promised that. I mean, I, you know, I mean, and then I think we, we tend to forget that like somebody else You know, it's like, uh, I, there's this, there's this story about a guy who was like kind of tired of his wife. Right. he was like, ah, she's gaining a little weight. She's getting older, blah, 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 all these things. And somebody told me, he's like, do you realize there's somebody that goes to sleep at night wishing that your wife could be their wife? And so all you're focused on is what she doesn't have. Instead of the fact that there are men out there who would love to have your wife. And I think that applies with anything in life. We look at our life and think, oh, it's not that great. When I've started to adjust to go, my life's pretty awesome. And I want to encourage other people to have hope. There's always hope. And in fact, even when bad stuff happens, like uh, one of the things I've really gotten into is like this this concept of like, you know, the problem of evil in the world, people talk about there's so much evil and there's so much bad and there's no denying between the pandemic and the war in Russia and the political climate. You know, it's just, things are weird right now. However, like those things, like you can't have courage unless there's something to be afraid of. If there's nothing to be afraid of, you can't have courage. You can't persevere when there's no circumstance to persevere through. So even the negative stuff that happens is an opportunity for us to build character. It there's so there's still hope. You know, no matter how bad something gets, there's still hope. Even if that hope, like, even if like my dad died of cancer, but that cancer gave him the opportunity to mend some fences that he could have mended. And like, you know, there's still opportunity. The hope is always still there. And it's not some Pollyanna to deny that life sucks sometimes. That's Pollyanna. I think hope is much more gritty than that. It's much more severe than that. So hope is severe to go, I acknowledge that this sucks, but I'm still going to have hope that things can be better and I can make the best of it. And maybe I can bring about some change in my life or someone else's life from it. So I've just really bought into hope being a really important thing.
1: Well said. Tell me, um, you said that you have three albums that you really haven't really gone out and played. So you've putting your songwriting on hold for a bit is that the way it works like do you write when 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 there are projects coming along do you because i think i read somewhere that sometimes you dream songs and Mm -hmm. and things come out so like at this point i know you're not actively writing but is that is that the way it is or are, are songs always coming through you
0: i would say this is the first time in my life that i've actively like not written and so i'm always writing now as a project gets closer I'll start to like ramp up more and more. I kind of go through this phase of like, I'll write and when we record an album, then there's like this rest phase. But I always, I almost consider it like reloading. Like I'll be reading, reading a lot of books, philosophy books, theology books, uh, books on prints, uh, books on uh, Elvis Costello. Like I, I'm, I'm reading and I'm collecting data, right? And then I'll start to get conceptually and I'll start to write more and more and more. I'm not ramped up because I spent, instead of spending like, half the year of 2020 being creative and the other half touring I spent the entire year being creative so we recorded the covers record which isn't just a covers record like we reimagined all these covers like uh, it's we did like a R&B D'Angelo version of the Cure like love song mm-hmm. and so it's all so that was almost a writing process in itself even though I wasn't rewriting the song the arrangement and then Christmas tune, which is like half original and the Christmas album, excuse me, and then pieces and one last thing. And then I also, uh, have put out my first philosophy book. Uh, and so I am, I am completely empty. I am in a phase now of rest and then I'll start to read and reload. I'm not even reading anything right now. I'm going to be <laughs> honest with you, but I'll start to read and reload and then we'll start. But right now it's just purely promotion phase. But I would say my normal cycle is, you know, ramp up, record, and then rest. And when I'm resting, I'm, I'm collecting information. I'm collecting subject matter by reading a lot.
1: It always amazes me how different things are from different people's point of view. How are things in terms of um, the pandemic and the way the band is handling the future? Are, are there tons of dates coming up? Are you holding back or where's that at right now?
0: um i would say we're we're still not back at touring at the clip we were before um so we're being a little more selective with gigs and there's not quite as many gigs that would be honest i mean there, there's still some weirdness uh i'm not sure how much of it's about the pandemic now as it is about the economy which is a result of the pandemic right. but it all plays on each other um but we're back out playing for sure um we played 2021 and it was, it was good. Uh, we're playing as much as we can in 2022, 2023 looks like it's going to be the year that's kind of the first year back to normal. Uh, so we would do between 65 and 80 dates in a normal year, but the last normal year for us was 2019. So. Okay.
1: Um, I'm going to wrap this up, but let me ask you one final question. This is a weird one. That little kid at eight who watched Prince on stage play purple rain is there a moment like that that you can share with me like was there a moment that you've been on stage and you thought my god this is this is like prince on purple rain
0: i don't know that i've had one moment um i i tend to like at our bigger shows like it it seems i'm almost removed from myself um when we're doing it and so it's only when i watch it back that i get that feeling So I get that feeling retroactive, like in the moment I'm too busy with like, making sure all those people out there are entertained. And if that guy looks bored, I need to try to reach him. And, oh, I gotta remember the lyrics. And, oh, here comes, I gotta step back as that person. So it's too much in the moment. But I get that feeling when I watch those bigger shows back.
1: But but do you get to enjoy that moment? Do you get to sit there and go, oh my God, there's all these people and they're enjoying it, blah, blah, blah. This is a great moment.
0: You know, I will will admit to you, being honest, I need to do better at that. I'm the guy that, um, you know, when I had the top 10 hit, I was like, well, but but it didn't hit number one, did it? And when I got my doctorate, I'm like, yeah, but I didn't get it from Harvard, did I? And I'm just, I'm never satisfied. And that's one of the things, like going back to the subject of hope, I'm trying to learn to, part of the hope is being grateful for what you do get to do. You know, I'm the kid that grew up that, neither of my parents had college degrees no one in my family had a college degree before me i've got five you know nobody had ever been a musician before nobody had been on a record label and so i'm trying to look back now so i am learning to enjoy those those moments more
1: well you've done well jason thank you so much for taking this time i really appreciate
0: it i appreciate it thank you for having me